Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Inside ND Sports Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football recruiting and more for InsideNDSports.com on the Rivals Network. The Inside ND Sports Podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, makers of the best premium socks I've ever owned. With the temperatures dropping, we have entered prime sock season, and our friends over at Dead Soxy just announced their BOGO winter sale. Right now, when you buy two sock bundles, you get the second bundle 50% off. Or get a free pair of socks with any single pair you purchase. To get the deal, just put any two bundles or any two pairs of socks in your cart and apply the code LUCKY, L-U-C-K-Y. If you have bundles in there, it will take 50% off the least expensive bundle. If you have two pairs of socks in your cart, it will make the least expensive pair free. So head over to deadsoxy.com and stock up on this incredible winter sale. I know I have really been digging the casual socks this time of year. There are plenty of different sock options that you can get at deadsoxy.com. So go ahead and check it out and take advantage of this deal. And as always, stay soxy. The search for Notre Dame's next offensive coordinator is on. Head coach Marcus Freeman is working through identifying and subsequently interviewing candidates to replace Alabama-bound Tommy Reese. It's hard to talk about anything else besides the offensive coordinator position around Notre Dame right now. So we wanted to bring on someone who's quite familiar with coaching searches, and that's John Bryce of footballscoop.com. John had a story yesterday being Tuesday detailing where Notre Dame was at in the process and some names to know moving forward. We've gotten to know John quite a bit since he moved to the area several years ago and he's very good at his job. So we were thrilled that he could take some time to talk to us about what he knows and what to expect moving forward from this Notre Dame search. John, thanks for joining us. Yeah, Tyler, Eric, I really appreciate it. Uh, as you guys know, cause I've told you tremendous respect for your work. And so really glad to join your podcast and uh, excited for the work you guys are doing at rivals because I spent about eight or nine years at rivals. So um, good company. Good, good for you guys. Well, we love that John to start. You have a lot of sources across the country. So you think you probably have a better perspective on this than we do. How, how coveted of a position is the Notre Dame offensive coordinator role? under the current circumstances? I think it's really coveted. Uh, I think it's coveted, obviously, number one, because it is Notre Dame, period. I think it's coveted, number two, because of the the really talented Notre Dame roster that I think all three of us recognize that they have so many future NFL draft picks on both sides of the ball, but especially going into 23 on that offensive side of the ball, and coveted because of, of Marcus Freeman and his energy and his leadership atop of the program there's a different perception of Notre Dame football right now here as we transition into early 2023 than certainly when I moved here um, prior to the 2017 season so I, I just think that there's a really positive energy around Notre Dame right now and I do think that um, it's one of the more coveted positions in college football yeah it's it's interesting to me John the names that have come up that haven't just said, no, I'm not interested. Um, you know, that, that, you know, we had the people on our board kind of come up with a wish list of candidates. And then I kind of ran through it through the filters that I thought Notre Dame needed to look for in a candidate, like, uh, somebody like, uh, Byron left, which didn't do well in my filters because of no college experience, but a lot of those names, are popping up as people that are legitimate candidates has any anything really surprised you in terms of the pool of candidates or how quickly it seems like they're being able to move their timetable through this 
Um, I don't I don't think it's particularly surprised me about the pool of candidates overall, um, again, because it's Notre Dame. Again, I was at the AFC Coaches Convention in Charlotte, um, January 7th through 11th, maybe something that that time frame is pretty close. There was a consistent buzz about Notre Dame uh, when I was there Saturday, Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, no matter where I went um, when I started talking to people about being from Football Scoop and living in South Bend, um, there was a lot of positive uh, affirmation about what Notre Dame is doing, about how Notre Dame has, um, frankly, enhanced its perception, not its profile, because it has a global profile already. But I think it's really enhanced its perception. It's done so with more aggressive recruiting, and, and that recruiting started with Marcus Freeman as defensive coordinator. I think it's continued with Marcus Freeman, as, obviously, as head coach. Uh, I will say the Sean Lewis uh, chatter that I think is very legitimate uh, is a little surprising because he just had gotten – uh, to Colorado. And so, um, and, and I know how much from speaking with people in Ohio, how much he sort of anguished over leaving the Midwest um, and then leaving that job. And it really looked like Sean Lewis was getting 100% getting the Cincinnati job. And then Satterfield sort of came out of nowhere to let Cincinnati know, hey, I'll leave Louisville. I'll take this job if you guys are interested. And then I think that's when Lewis pivoted to join Dion's staff at Colorado um, so, so that's maybe a single surprising individual, but otherwise, I'm not surprised. I mean, it, it's Notre Dame. And again, this roster is built to be on not just any national stage, but all the top national college football stages in 23. John, uh, to give credit where credit's due, footballscoop.com, the, the lead story still this morning uh, was your update on Notre Dame's search, um, and it included – Several names being vetted by Notre Dame. That was Utah offensive coordinator Andy Ludwig, Washington offensive coordinator Ryan Grubb, Toledo head coach Jason Candle, Colorado offensive coordinator Sean Lewis, you just mentioned NFL offensive coordinator Byron Lefwich, and Eagles quarterback coach Brian Johnson. Um, and also the caveat that at least one other Power 5 offensive coordinator was being considered. Uh, so let's put the unnamed options to the side. How confident are you that one of those six names will be Notre Dame's next offensive coordinator? You know, I think we're a little bit premature from saying it's definitely going to be one of these six guys. What I can tell you with uh, pretty considerable confidence is that the guys on that list, and, and I think I think Notre Dame vetted Grub. I know Notre Dame vetted Grub. Um, I think he obviously just got raised to $2 million mm -hmm. plus in, in Washington in, in late December. So I, I don't see that being a move that he would make right now. Uh, but those other guys, again, they've all been vetted. I th there have been conversations with multiple of those coaches that we named in our story, not just vettings, not just feelings out there. have been conversations with multiple multiple of those coaches in our story. Um, some of those preliminary conversations or dialogues began later last week, but the actual conversations have been really focused on Monday and Tuesday of this week. John, I know that it, just based on what Tyler just asked you, it's difficult to kind of predict who's going to come out at the end. So let me ask it this way. Who are two, two candidates that you think that's who you'd like to see Notre Dame get for, from their benefit that, that you think they would be the strongest candidates? You know, um, I'm going to cheat just a little bit and say it's it would be hard to, to go wrong based on people I trust. 
Um, people that I say routinely sleep more football knowledge than I'll ever have. Um, I think any, any, anybody that would emerge from the, the Sean Lewis, Jason Candle, uh, Andy Ludwig trio. Um, again, the people that I've talked to as recently as yesterday, a guy who was on staff for uh, quite some time with Andy Ludwig said, uh, Bryce, I'm telling you right now, that would be a home run hire for Notre Dame. People in Ohio that I trust immensely uh, rave about both Candle and Sean Lewis. Um, I had an agent tell me point blank. I said, hey, do you have Sean Lewis? I'm hearing some stuff. He goes, no, but I wish we did. The guy's a hell of a coach. <laughs> and so I think that's the best way. When you can get an agent to say something good about a coach and it's not that agent's coach, that's a pretty good football coach. Yeah, I would say so. What, From your perspective, what do you think Marcus Freeman will be prioritizing in finding the next offensive coordinator? You know, I think that it's it's fit, Tyler, and, and you know this. You're around the program. You've been around the program. You guys are two of the veteran most reporters covering Notre Dame football. I think you would have far better perspective to maybe how the atmosphere and environment around the program has changed than what I have. I saw the final few years of BK, and then I've seen uh, Marcus up close since he arrived in 21. I see a change. I just think there is a more familial atmosphere. I think there is a greater positive energy. I definitely think there is an absolutely overt and almost palpable uh, emphasis on recruiting. So I think those are elements that that Marcus Freeman would emphasize as he tries to find his next offensive coordinator. And then it's obviously about putting Notre Dame in, in the best possible position on the field this year to take advantage of a great roster, but also be positioned for, for future success. I do think um, it's, it's, it would be tough to face the specter of, or I know it's a concern for some people in the process to face the specter of maybe hiring a guy and only having him for one year. And I get that. I would also contend that if you hire a guy and you only have him for, for one year because he gets another job, that means he's done a hell of a job and you've had a hell of a season. Right. And so um, I, I don't really buy into to that notion, but I understand why why that uh, concern is maybe out there. But, but to me, again, you have to fit with Marcus Freeman's vision. And I think this staff overall, for the most part, does a great job of fitting with Marcus's vision, and that is uh, recruiting-centric and family-first. Yeah, it's it's interesting with the shelf life of these um, offensive coordinators, and, and they always haven't been synonymous with play callers. I think going back all the way to the beginning of Lou Holtz era in '86, I think maybe the longest run of somebody in that role is four years, and he didn't call. Well, he did call some plays one year, uh, and then Charlie took it back over. That was Mike Haywood, but um, let's let's pivot to. Tommy Reese for just a minute. Um, you know, I, I think if we all were sitting around having lunch and gave our opinions, I don't know that there's a universal opinion about what Notre Dame's losing and how, uh, how well Tommy Reese will do at Alabama. What's, what are your thoughts about Tommy Reese at Alabama? I'm very intrigued by it. Uh, certainly going into it, I think, Overall, and, and in the next couple of years, Tommy Reese is likely to have more talent overall than what he's had at Notre Dame. He obviously had a different starting quarterback uh, to open each of his season as offensive coordinator at Notre Dame. Um, but look, it's a it's a different world, guys, in the SEC. And that's where I covered college football for the longest time, particularly 
uh, in the University of Tennessee market. And there's just so many, so many different things that that Tommy uh, was not accustomed to uh, here at Notre Dame. There, there will be more public appearances for him to make to engage with fans. I think that's going to be something he'll need to adapt to. I think that um, there's just going to be, frankly, a different level of, of scrutiny working at a at a public institution where contracts can be FOI'd and where bonus structures and everything else is going to be FOI'd. I feel like we at Football Scoop have had a, a really great handle on, on Tommy's contract situation since he rose to be offensive coordinator uh, in January of 2020 and, and moving forward from there and kind of the renegotiations that he had, including through last January when he committed to Marcus and stayed with the program and got a new contract. But um, it's going to be public. I think that's a huge difference. And, and again, you're going to a program, Notre Dame, which stuns me as a college football lifer and um, a guy who thinks college football, major league baseball are the two best things going. I can't believe it's been 35 years since Notre Dame won a national title. I, I really can't. It's been 25 years since Tennessee won an sec or a national title. Those are things that, that as a kid, I would have never expected to see. Well, it's only been a couple of years at Alabama, but they're restless. And um, <laughs> I think, I think Tommy Reese, knows a tremendous amount of football. I do think he's in for a bit of awakening. Uh, I, I don't know if it's too early to say this is a trend, but we uh, we we saw with Sean Lewis leaving the Mac to go, at, being a Mac head coach to go to Colorado. Jason Candle's name has come up both in the Miami offensive coordinator search and the Notre Dame offensive coordinator search. Do you think we are going to see more of this where a group of five hit? head coaches are considering power five coordinator positions more frequently, or, or was that happening more often and maybe we weren't paying attention to it? I think it's, it's been a bit of an emerging trend, Tyler. That's a great question. And I would, I would go so far to say I would be quite surprised if Jason Candle isn't a power five offensive coordinator in 2023, rather than being Toledo's head coach in 2023. I would be really surprised by that. Um, I do think it's an emerging trend. I think it's about money. I think it's about um, the specter of the expanding playoffs and um, conference realignment and how much some some other programs are worried about the stability of their footing moving into the future, the viability of group of five football moving into the future in terms of just how much visibility are you going to be able to get in order to take a job. So I would say the two largest trends that I've noticed in recent years, and I alluded to this in our, our story on Football Scoop, is that, yes, group of five head coaches are looking increasingly to take offensive or defensive coordinator roles um, at really lucrative paying positions at power five levels. And I would continue to point out that I know for I know guys firsthand, guys that I'm friends with who have turned down two to three hundred thousand dollars more money to be a position coach at the, at the college level, maybe a tight ends coach at the college level to remain in an assistant running backs coach at the NFL level, because the quality of life is so much better. And that will continue to be the case until there is clarity on NIL guidelines, until there's a better grasp of, of how the transfer portal is going to work. This is the first time now we've dealt with these new windows that ran December to to mid-January, and now the next one's coming up for two weeks in, in May. Uh, and one other thing that we're monitoring that I think is really key that will cause some more movement to become potentially a trend that you're talking about, I expect FBS football to get an 11th, uh, an 11th coach added to the staff. I think that's going to be voted through. 
I've talked to too many guys, guys that are NCAA D2 head coaches, D3 head coaches, FCS coordinators. Those There are people lining up for that 11th job, especially if that 11th job is going to pay, say, $150,000 and you can't be sent on the road. And it's my understanding that's a very likely scenario, that even when staffs expand to 11 coaches, you're still only going to be able to send 10 guys on the road. All right. So I know we talked a little bit before you came on or, or before we started about that you've been involved in a lot of other coaching searches. So my my question to you is, I mean, you know, BK hired a lot of assistants. The absolute one that went awful was Brian Van Gorder, and that was right before you got here. Uh, he was let go. But is there a common thread in in assistant coaching – let's say coordinator searches at high profile schools that go wrong because not everybody gets this right. There are some bad mistakes. There are, there's some absolutely terrible mistakes. Look at, um, look at Miami and why, yeah. like we discussed right before we press record guys. And I do think it's worth noting that that's the same Miami program that went incredibly aggressively after Tommy Reese last January and, and felt like it was making some headway on potentially getting Tommy Reese to take its offensive coordinator job at that time and really tossed around a lot of money. They ended up kind of uh, reverting back to Josh Gaddis or settling for Go Josh Gaddis. That was an abject disaster. I mean, the, the Canes were um, incredibly hard to watch. The Canes were as hard to watch all season on offense as what we saw out of Notre Dame against uh, Ohio State, Marshall, Cal, and Stanford. But they were that for the the duration. And they weren't expected to be um, because they didn't have the same injuries. They did have uh, some guys returning in some key spots. So I think comfortability is a big element. And that's why I think you see guys that um, if they don't share, if they don't share an agent, then they share common links. They've maybe worked together somewhere else before or somebody else on Notre Dame staff has maybe worked with a guy somewhere before. I think that's, I think you got to start, especially when you're in a compressed time frame. Notre Dame doesn't have to rush because there's, there's frankly no other program like Notre Dame out there looking for an offensive coordinator at this moment. And there's not a dozen power five programs looking for OCs at this moment, but Notre Dame has a bit of a comp compressed time frame, And I think that's why you maximize your connections. How many people do you know? How many people have you visited with, uh, in in the past year, you know, I think that Marcus Freeman and Jason Candle have visited in the past. Um, I'm sure of that. And so I think that that's significant when when a coach goes into this process, Eric. So, so speaking of Candle, he's the one that I would think there may be some sort of time constraint with, considering that he's up for the Miami offensive coordinator job. Do you think there is some urgency there? Or is it because those maybe really like the two biggest jobs left that they can sort of go back and forth until whoever figures out or he figures out or the, the programs figure out that this is, this is who they want for sure. No, I, I think that um, it's, it's realistic to think that both of these programs need, need to know the general direction by the end of this week. And especially I think Miami needs it more than Notre Dame uh, because Miami's has been open for longer. And, right. And because Miami, we knew, for example, that, um, in January, when my when the dead period lifted and Miami was now back to hosting visitors, they did not include Josh Gaddis as part of their uh, really official visitor, official visit weekend um, process, uh, part of their activities. He really was not around the program during that time. 
And so people started to notice that, started to ask questions. Um, the transfer portal is not open right now. I think that's a great thing for Miami uh, with the way that their search has dragged on. Notre Dame's is a little quicker. It was uh, almost exactly this time a week ago, last Wednesday, that I got the first text that said, hey, uh, Tommy in Alabama. And by like, I think 6.42 last Wednesday night, I had it just concrete. Hey, this has happened. They've already Zoomed today. And I think that's why uh, when we wrote on Thursday, we had so much detail in our story because I'd had some time to chase stuff down and, and thoroughly vet it. So Notre Dame's on a week uh, of dealing with, with Tommy and knowing that it was a real thing. Um, but there was scuttle. There was scuttle at the coaches' convention that, hey, movement may not be done at Notre Dame. Keep your eyes on, on a couple of specific things. And um, whereas that scuttle goes all the way back to December at Miami. John, last one from me. There's people are always asking me and they're speculating about Marcus's and Tommy's relationship since Marcus really didn't, you know, say, hey, I want Tommy to be my offensive coordinator. Um, it seemed like it was more Swarbrick's idea and, and Marcus was on board with it. But how do you think those two meshed this year? And do you think that hastened Tommy's departure because he was going to leave at some point but do you think that sped up the um time frame or not i don't i don't think that those guys didn't mesh this season um and, and i've seen so much debate in recent days about what tommy reese did or did not do for notre dame um and and maybe i'm wrong here I see a stat that keeps getting thrown around that, well, they only beat one top five team with Tommy Reese's offensive coordinator. I thought it was two because I thought Clemson was a top five team in 2022. And I thought Clemson was a top five team and Clemson was number one in 2020. And so um, yeah, I think that, that some of what Tommy did ha has been glossed over. Now the flip side of that is I will say <clears throat> Tommy was here three years as an assistant under chip. And then he was here three years with control of the offense, two of those under Brian Kelly, and you guys know it, again, exponentially better than me, there's a different recruiting emphasis now at Notre Dame from the head coach down than what there was for Brian Kelly to Tommy Reese. But um, I would say Tommy Reese's lack of quarterback options this past season fell squarely on the shoulders of Tommy Reese. Yeah. Um, and that, that to me, is the biggest thing. So when people complain about what Tommy did or did not do, he's overall going to be inheriting more talent day one at Alabama than he had at Notre Dame, but he's got to look himself in the mirror and figure out why was that the case? Why didn't he get more talent to Notre Dame as the recruiter? But I don't think that, I don't think that, that Marcus and Tommy <clears throat> had this uh, strong divisiveness in their relationship whatsoever. I do think it was made clear to Tommy uh, when, when Notre Dame again saw quarterback issues early in the season. Um, and, uh, and especially when it looked like Drew Pine might be injured on that one quarterback run. I think it really came crystal clear focus to everybody that Notre Dame has to get a quarterback out of the portal. Tommy Reese, I think felt tremendous pressure to go get a quarterback out of the portal. Um, and I think maybe that caused a bit of a strain, but, but again, I go back to who assembled that quarterback roster and that has nothing to do with Marcus Freeman, in my opinion. Just a follow-up. I don't have a stat in front of me, but Notre Dame's record versus top five teams from the end of the Holtz era to when Marcus uh, beat Clemson was abysmal. I mean, it was like four and 27, something ridiculous. So, I mean, picking off a top five team, that's, that's an accomplishment. Yeah. <laughs> Just no, saying it's, it's one or two. <laughs> that's, that's a majority. 
Yeah, I mean, what <clears throat> what is it? Clemson still hasn't lost to anybody in the ACC, and and how many years? And Notre Dame has beaten them two of the last three years. Um, and so, and I don't discount what Notre Dame did in, in that 2020 season because Notre Dame had its own adversity. And I know that that uh, Trevor Lawrence didn't play that game and came back and played the other game. And and I would say that that nobody points to the fact that in those 2020 playoffs, Clark Lee and and company. Uh, kept it closer with Notre Dame than anybody did in those playoffs. That that margin of defeat was closer than what Alabama actually won the national championship by. And you can say, well, that's because Notre Dame played slow ball or whatever. We did a content piece at that time. I remember talking about with coaches for football scoop where coaches said, Hey, I can see what your guy at Notre Dame is trying to do. He just doesn't have the horses. So I, I thought again, that's interesting. And I promise you those are guys that know exponentially more football than I ever will. John, you started working and doing some stories for UND.com prior to the start of last season. I'm curious, obviously you've been around the program previously, but that gave you a little bit different access to the program. What did you learn about Marcus Freeman in his first season as head coach? You know, I just learned the that what we hear is what they get, that when he talks about family, he means it. And you guys saw it enough. I, I don't think um, maybe I stood off to the side and did some interviews while you guys were upstairs. It's not like I was at practice every day or anything like right. that. But you guys saw on those Tuesdays when we came over there, families were around, not just Marcus's family, all the families. That was regular. There were a number of elements in the program that were opened up to family uh, that people have been here for a while have told me just simply was not the case beforehand. Um, and one of the things that appealed to me about partnering with them for some freelance stuff was the chance to tell stories um, across other sports because I grew up on the SEC, um, so I didn't have as a, as much appreciation for Notre Dame until I got here and saw it up close firsthand. <clears throat> I think you guys know my wife works for Notre Dame, so I've seen it from, from her work in development and, and how passionate people are about the school and its mission. And so that for me, I mean, last week I got to do a story about uh, Corbin Albert signing with Paris St. Germain. She's, that's a huge story. It, it's women's college soccer, but it's a global story. I mean, PSG is the brand in soccer. You've got this transcendent Notre Dame women's soccer player leaving after her sophomore season, uh, which again calls into to view all the different rules that you have among all the different sports. Like if you show up for college baseball, you got to stay at least three years. That was not the case for, for college soccer. So I found that interesting. Um, I've gotten to do some stuff with, with the golf program. So all of those things appealed to me about getting the chance to um, a lot of what we do at football scoop is chasing news, chasing news, chasing news. And I'm a competitive jerk and I kind of love that chase, <laughs> but I also like trying to tell the good stories and that's what I've tried to focus on doing at Notre Dame but I think the the authenticity uh what you see is what you get and when he says family he means it yeah that 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 Corbin Albert news had me reading French websites so I, I was like I don't know any, I don't know the first thing about soccer to be honest so I was trying to figure out what was going on and what that all meant but yeah it seems like a pretty pretty I, I'm I am knowledgeable enough to know that that's a pretty impressive accomplishment and, a, and a, a, quite the feather in the cap of the Notre Dame women's soccer program yeah exactly Last one from me, uh, John, and I'll shift back to football. What are your expectations for Sam Hartman in a Notre Dame uniform this fall? Um, Sam Hartman's going to, just like we talk about Tommy overall having more talent, Sam Hartman's going to by far have more talent than what he's been accustomed with. I mean, I truly believe 
He's got uh, two first-round tackles blocking for him in Joe Alden, Blake Fisher. Uh, I expect both of those guys to be 8, 10, 12-year NFL-type players. Uh, people who know more football than me have said that they believe there's a great chance for Zeke Correll to develop into a fifth, sixth, seventh-round type of draft draft prospect from the center position. Um, I think there's multiple NFL players in the Irish backfield at the running back position, and I think Chancey Stuckey hasn't remotely gotten enough credit for the job that he's done in turning over and elevating the Notre Dame wide receiver group, uh, which, again, I would say ties into to Tommy Reese and Dale Alexander and that previous crew. All right, John, that's all we have for you. We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us. I'm sure you probably have like three coaching stories that have come across your phone in the time that we were doing this interview. So we really appreciate you taking time to talk to us. I put the uh, phone on do not disturb for, for you guys to ensure that, that we didn't have any interruptions. And uh, I'm not on video, but Tyler, I'm wearing my Braves hat. I know you're looking forward uh, to White Sox baseball. And as long as the Cubs stink, it'll be a good season. <laughs> All right. Hey, I, I'm a I'm a Cardinals fan, so I'll go with the Cubs stink theme. Too. <laughs> there you go. As a reminder, the Inside Indy Sports podcast is presented by Dead Soxy, maker of the best dress socks you'll ever wear. With the temperatures dropping and going back up and dropping again, and the groundhog indicating an extended winter, we have entered prime sock season. And our friends over at Dead Soxy just announced their BOGO winter sale. Right now, when you buy two sock bundles, you get the second bundle 50% off. Or get a free pair of socks with any single pair you purchase. To get these deals, just put any two bundles or any two pairs of socks in your cart and apply the code LUCKY, L-U-C-K-Y. If you've got the bundles in there, it'll take 50% off the least expensive bundle. If you've got two pairs of socks in your cart, it will make the least expensive pair free. That's how that works. Remember, all the socks come with a patented technology with a no-slip guarantee made from bamboo for that premium luxury field. Head over to deadsoxy.com. That's D-E-A-D-S-O-X-Y.com and stock up on this incredible winter sale. Promo code LUCKY. And as always, stay soxy. All right, now it's time for questions. You can submit questions to us on Twitter or the Insider Lounge message board before every podcast. I'm at TJamesND and Eric's at ND. First one I have for us, Eric, is from Wayne Usteroff at W Usteroff. Who are your top three candidates for offensive coordinator and the head men's basketball coach? Great job as always, and thanks for all you guys do. So that, this covered – we had lots of different offensive coordinator questions, as you can imagine. So this one felt like it covered the the broadest angle, and then we can just kind of go from there. And then I, a little bit of men's basketball, which we don't get a ton, to que- ton of questions on, but I figured we could at least chime in there as well. So um, I, I interpreted this as who – who I'm most impressed with that seems yeah. to be solidly in the mix. So I went with Brian Johnson of the Eagles first, um, Eagles quarterbacks coach with a lot of college experience. I went with Ryan Grubb second, although again, it sounds like his level of interest is up for debate. Um, and and again, I, I mentioned that in a story I did earlier. I There were a few guys that I just didn't think they could get interested based on them turning down another job or just getting a job. Number three, I went with Ludwig from Utah and, and Sean Lewis would be my next guy kind of just outside of those top three. If I had to take Ryan Grubb out and reform it based on him, not 
being as interested, then Sean Lewis would make my top three. Yeah, so my I have I have Johnson and Lugwood in my top three. I didn't n- number them one through three. I think I would probably do Ludwig number one. I just like his experience, the diversity of colleges he's been to, the, the f- similar philosophy in his offense at Utah um, that seems to fit what Notre Dame and Marcus Freeman value. Um, so I think if I had to pick a favorite, that would be my favorite. Um, and then the other one that I have on my list that you didn't was Jason Candle. I, I like that he's coached various positions on the offense. Um, he, he knows how to maintain a program as a head coach. He has Ohio ties, which I think is certainly important from a recruiting standpoint. Um, so those would be the three on my list. And if I was going to include a fourth, I would have included Joe Moorhead as my my fourth option. How about your top three men's basketball head coach candidates? I do not have a strong feel for this, but I just kind of went with, I looked at Tom Noy's list and looked at the uh, people that seemed to be the most likely to get the job. Um, DeVries from Drake, Kelsey from College of Charleston, and Shrewsbury from Penn State. Uh, I think Martin Inglesby would do a great job. I've known Martin since he was 17 years old. I went to see him in the Nike camp, and I, when Mark, when Martin was at Notre Dame, his dad called me maybe every other day, and we would chat about the team and so forth. Um, Tom Inglesby was a really great guard at Villanova on a team that almost beat a UCLA dynasty team in the finals. Um, But Martin would never tell him anything. So that's why he always had to call me, Uh, but I think Martin would do a really good job. So I'll throw him a wild card in there. All right. I went, I, I had two of this just like the other one. I have two of the same Shrewsbury and Kelsey and I have Florida Atlantic head coach, Dusty May on my personal top three. Um, I like how he's turned things around at FAU, has ex- assistant experience at a number of places. Um, and that, that I think I, I held that against DeVries. I, I don't know if I'm even saying their names correctly. Uh, that's you know, Basketball isn't our strongest suit, um, and uh, it's harder to get that investigated. Hey, I'm just happy I learned how to say Jean-Baptiste right. <laughs> but he's only been a coach at Creighton and Drake only, which I know I sort of uh, like – Jason Candle, when we're talking about offensive coordinator candidates, he's been at basically Mount Union in Toledo. Um, but I think it's different in, in being an offensive coordinator versus being a head coach. I think that I think being more familiar with different places, I think is is at least in my opinion, valuable. Um, and so I would hold that a little bit against him. I'm not saying he wouldn't be a good coach at Notre Dame, but if I had to like figure out at a sort of a surface level, because I mean, I don't know these guys. I would want to know them better to feel much more confident about what I'm saying. But like at a surface level, that would be a, a bit of a red flag, I think, in my opinion. All right. Next question is from one Irish one on the Insider Lounge. Sounds to me like Brian Johnson is going to get the OC job. What are y'all hearing and what are your predictions? Well, um, I hope your prediction is right uh, <laughs> that, because he's both of our favorites. Um, I don't know that he it's a foregone conclusion that he's going to get it or that he would take it because he probably has the most other attractive options given that there there's probably going to be some NFL coordinator jobs that he's going to be a candidate for. Um, so what was the second part of the question? And then just what what's our prediction? Well, like who do we think will be the offense coordinator? I don't think it'll be him. Um, 
just kind of a gut feel, I would say Sean Lewis. All right. Yeah. But I don't feel confident about that. That no. was a yeah. dart at the board. Yeah, I, I think need it's a little bit more time. Right. It's a little too early to predict. I mean, the, 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 we're not in even in like the formal interview pr- stage yet, um, at least as we're c- recording this early Wednesday. Um, I, I'm in agreement with the, the Johnson thing. I, I'm, I'm not sure where, I, where that perspective – I mean, I think – I mean, I posted something on Twitter to the effect of like there's a lot of information that's – being passed around and exaggerated based on things that people oh, yeah. people are reporting or suggesting. And so I think people, I think there's a lot of jumping a few steps ahead by some people um, going on there. So I, I'm guessing that's maybe why one Irish one is, is saying that about Brian Johnson. So I, I don't think, I, I'm not sure. Like I consider when we were giving our top three, I considered it not including them. Cause I'm just, I'm not, that would be the one that would be the most surprising to me that wouldn't have a better opportunity that he would like better than Notre Dame. Um, just, be, just because like once you get in the NFL, I think it's, it is harder to go back to college unless you have a serious passion for that, which he's coached plenty in college. So I think he does have that, but I think the opportunities that will be ahead of him, which haven't played out yet because he's coaching in the Super Bowl, And so like, yeah. there's, there's, there's steps that are going to happen. Like I think people will, the good thing is the Super Bowls this week, um, right? Yeah, so at least we're not we're not that far out. So the timing isn't terrible for Notre Dame. They can wait to make sure and see what Brian wa- Johnson wants to do if he does want to go ahead and interview at Notre Dame and and would prioritize that opportunity. Um, so if I if I'm if I'm making a prediction, I'm I'm going with Jason Candle. Um, John and I had made this prediction before we spoke to John and John Bryce, uh, and he. I mean, he even indicates he's like he would be he thinks he will be a coordinator rather than the head coach next season. Um, so that means he's probably either like that means he's probably 50 50 between Notre Dame and, and Miami. Um, so I think that if I had to place a bet or something like that, or if you said you have to pick one person, that that's probably where I, I would go right now. All right, next question is from Cheryl Russo at Cheryl R. Bunch of numbers. Any word on which offensive coordinator candidates were on campus to interview for the job? Well, again, by the time Cheryl listens to this, the, the answer may have changed, but I think the game plan was to get get through the Zooms first and then get people on campus late in the week and into the weekend and then move pretty quickly Um once they get to the point, if you're waiting for Brian Johnson, it would be something that next week, and you'd want an indication from Brian at that point how interested he is. Or he said, ah, I really need to see what's going on with these NFL jobs. You know, if if that's his priority, then then I think Notre Dame moves quickly without him. But it sounds like at least that door is open right now for him to be included. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. You'll like, start seeing reports um maybe as early as tomorrow of people being on campus, I think. Yeah, and tomorrow being Thursday, like I said, yeah. we were recording this early Wednesday. Um, I don't think there has been anyone that's interviewed on campus to this point. Um, and as we find that out, we'll be sharing that information on the Insider Lounge with our subscribers. All right, next question is from at Drew Brennan77 on the Insider Lounge. What's it about Akron, Toledo, and Kent State that make them places where top offensive coordinators come from? 
I think it's um, the Mac in general. Um, if I mean, even if you look at historically and not just those schools, you know, you look at Lou Holtz played at a Mac school, Nick Saban, defensive guy, played at a Mac and coached in a Mac school. I mean, he got his beginning in the Mac era, Parsegian, Mac player, Mac coach, um, Urban Meyer and uh, Brian Kelly. I mean, they all had roots in the Mac at some point. It's a great proving ground and a great place to kind of separate yourself in terms of being somebody that's on a fast track to success and a guy that maybe isn't. And some of the guys that come out of the Mac and get head coaching jobs elsewhere, it doesn't work out. And sometimes they do, but, but um, I think, you know, if you're not from the South, um, the Mac is a logical place to, to get an opportunity and then move quickly because people don't expect you to stay there forever. Yeah. And I think it helps that the Mac has a lot of crossovers with power five schools. I mean, most frequently big 10 schools, but the Mac will play, the Mac teams will play up. And I, so, so you get some crossover to see how that applies against those power five programs. I think in the Mac, you're not, you're not just winning on talent. Um, so I think that gives you a sense of what the coach or, or what the coordinator is capable of and how they can sort of build an offense or defense around um, the talent that they have on the roster and getting the most out of that. So I think there are challenges at that level that allow you to sort of prove what you can do. And to your point, the history of the success there, may, I think gives people confidence in continuing to turn to programs like that for, for coordinator positions. And I, and I think sort of like what we talked about with John Bryce, that the current state of college football is making it harder for those coaches to stay in the Mac. Like they, uh, there's, there's more turnover on staffs. The the rosters are having more turnover with the transfer portal. Um, so I think we're going to continue to see, to see that uh, moving forward. Next question is from Marie Biafore at Biafore underscore Marie. Are you concerned about taking an NFL coach who has not recruited recently as the offensive coordinator? If he was a good recruiter previously, once he gets to the NFL and gets used to not recruiting, it seems like re-entry back into college football recruiting can be difficult as with Al Golden. Well, I, I, I think you're selling Al a little bit short. I don't know that he was lighting the world on fire like Marcus did, but I think he was involved. He wasn't always like the lead recruiter for a player, but he was involved and I think he had a pretty good role. But let's say you're talking about Byron Leftwich, who's never coached in college. Yeah, I would have some concerns about that. That doesn't mean he can't overcome that. Certainly, Chancey Stuckey, with very little experience, you know, knocked it out of the park this year with recruiting for Notre Dame. But I think when you have an offensive coordinator and you have this much quality, that that was my first criteria was being an elite recruiter. And, and uh, you know, if you're learning on the job for a couple of years, they already did that with Tommy Reese. They want somebody that's a proven recruiter. Yeah. To me, recruiting is less about experience than it is sort of like passion for it and like uh, uh, wanting to do it and not, not, it's not like it's pulling teeth. Like it's something you care about doing. And then you also like it's personality based. It's, it's charismatic. Like if you, if you are someone that people want to talk to, you are going to be able to recruit well, whether or not you've done it before or not. Um, I think 
the one thing that experience as a recruiter helps with is like, okay, should I trust this? Like, should I be putting all my eggs in one basket? Which is a, a similar question that we get, we have later in the, in the podcast. Like how do you, the balancing acts that comes with recruiting, I think is something that experience does help with. But I think when you're on a college football staff, you're going to have enough people around you that have that experience that, so if an often like say, I mean, I, I don't know this about Byron Leftwich. If, if the, if, Marcus Freeman interviewed Byron Leftwich and felt like, hey, he's a really compelling person. His personality is great. He's gonna be able to relate to recruits. Like because if he hadn't recruited before, like that wouldn't stop me from from hiring him. Now I'm not saying that's where things are heading based off. I mean, I think people can tell that based on the conversations we've had going into this, but in like sort of that hypothetical, I, I don't think like experience as a recruiter is as important as sort of just being convinced that that person is going to sort of buy into it and take the time for it and not be annoyed by it because I think some people are, um, and that's totally fine. I, I, I think that is probably the least attractive part of being a college football coach for many people. All right. Next question is from RRH one on the insider lounge. Who do you think will be the Chicago area recruiting leader now? Um, I think it depends on who they hire. Um, I think Sean, Lewis may be from Chicago or Chicago suburbs. So um, you could certainly, you know, move people around. You could send Harry, he stand over there. Um, there's a lot of different ways you could go, but I'd see who the new offensive coordinator is. And if there's a natural match there, then maybe that person remains the Chicago area recruiter. But so much of recruiting is, you know, position based that I don't know that that's super critical. I, I know that they'd like to uh, do a better job overall in Chicago and making sure maybe they are the number one, you know, school with Chicago talent. But uh, I, I think, you know, whoever they pick is going to do a good job with it. Yeah. Area recruiting leaders are, are far less important than they've ever been before, in my opinion. Um, and especially like, for the like it's one thing if you're talking about like Hawaii um where obviously Brian Pullian played an important role there and Brian Mason has been given that task um now which I think is a bit of a treat <laughs> uh for Brian Mason um like I I know it's a long travel but it's not a bad way to spend a few days when you're out on the recruiting trail um but like at Chicago I mean any if like Notre Dame wants any of its coaches to get there. It's pretty easy to make that happen. Um, so I think it's especially like bigger cities in the Midwest. Like there's probably, it's probably good to have some sort of point of contact, but it's not like that impossible to sort of manage, like having multiple coaches going to Chicago. I mean, that's what they did in January when they spent, I mean, Tommy Reese was in Chicago most frequently, but just about, <laughs> I mean, probably half the staff was in Chicago at some point, if not more. I'm not, I'm just saying that off the top of my head. I didn't go back and look. Um, so if, if I had to pick someone, I would say either Mike Mickens or Al Washington would be, be someone that I think would make sense to do that with. Um, especially, I mean, and maybe it changes by year, but like Al Washington's going to want and need to spend some, a lot of time in Chicago moving forward because of Justin Scott's recruitment. So why not make him sort of in charge of the rest of the area for now? Um, if that's what, if that's what you wanted to do, but like you said, the, the coordinator hire could, could play a role in that. And that, that could be who would be tasked with that, um, as well. 
Next question is from at Rockney93 on the Insider Lounge. What impact, if any, does Tommy Reese's departure have on recruiting? Do all the 2024 offensive commits stick? So far, they seem to be that we haven't heard from CJ Carr, but um, we have heard from the other offensive players in the class, and they seem to be committed. You know, Tommy wasn't their lead recruiter, and CJ, unless he's just feels like it's a bad schematic match for him, a bad personality match, I would be surprised if he was. Um, you know, taken aback by whoever Notre Dame hires as the offensive coordinator. He knew that Tommy wasn't going to be there for his entire career. Um, and it turns out he won't be there for none of it. Uh, but he has a strong enough relationship with Marcus Freeman that I think he's going to be um, in a good place. And then certainly the guys that have been offered that haven't committed or haven't visited, the new coordinator is going to have time to, you know, I'm sure that they'll be hired during the dead period here and they'll have time to get people on campus, get to know the new coordinator and form relationships with him. So I don't know that it's going to be a huge impact in recruiting. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure that I need to add much more to that. I, I, I on the entire lounge, I, ran sort of what I called like Tommy Reese's recruiting resume at Notre Dame. And obviously the biggest impact area he made on was quarterback recruiting. And I think it was a bit of a mixed bag. I think the, and I mean, this is probably true for a lot of coaches that leave Notre Dame by choice. I think he was getting better at recruiting. And so I think he, I think he was becoming less of a liability on the recruiting trail, which I think, maybe too too harsh to say of what his recruiting acumen was prior to or early on in his career. Um, but I think, I think he was getting a better feel for that. Um, although like, if you watch the Dante Moore recruitment, you're like, are you serious? <laughs> like <laughs> how, how did that, that didn't exactly go well for him. But I think some, some of that I think is it's hard to predict and, and go through. And I think anytime you're going for top recruits, that stuff has a chance of happening, but maybe put, put himself in a better position to have a, a backup plan beyond that, uh, which I, we've talked about ad nauseum, but um, I, I don't see it being a massive um, loss for Notre Dame on the recruiting trail. And like you mentioned, the 2024 commits for the most part have indicated to us directly that their recruitment hasn't changed with his departure. All right. Next one is from okay. Underscore. Thanks on the entire lounge is CJ Carr gone. Did Andy put way too many, Eggs in the car basket missed out on 2023. If he commits, ND will be scr scrabbling for another second tier kid in 2024. Uh, you know, with the price of eggs, that uh, <laughs> that expression <laughs> takes on a whole new meaning. No, I don't think he's gone at all. Um, and again, I I just answered in the last question. Uh, but but let's look at the rest of the question here and play that out. Did they put too many eggs in? One basket. Well, I mean, the elite 2024 guys, they're not going to all, um, you know, kind of convene at one school. And, you know, if CJ Carr was going to go to Notre Dame, then Julian Sand wasn't. And Notre Dame had a very good shot. They had to kind of decide between those two which one was their preference. 
And now um, Tommy's now Tommy goes to Alabama where Julian Sands go, which is kind of funny. Right. It is. It is kind of funny. So, you know, I, I think it's early enough in the cycle. If CJ Carr, you know, got a little bit of cold feet about this with a new coordinator, you know, you'd know right away and you'd have to jump back into the 2024 class. And a lot of the, you know, really elite guys are already gone, but um, you know, there may be quarterbacks that like the new offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach better. Uh, I'm not going to say that they didn't absolutely botch 23. They, they, the whole thing with Dante Moore, they were very lucky that they were able to get Kenny Minchie at the end of the cycle. And I think they pivoted too quickly, but that's a whole thing about not even having a commitment. Dante Moore didn't decommit per se. Um, CJ Carr is committed and recruiting very hard for Notre Dame. Um, so I think there are different situations and I don't see the doomsday sky is falling scenario happening. Yeah. I, I, everyone wants to get caught up in whether Dante Moore was silently committed or not. There's a reason I don't cover silent commitments and I've covered recruiting for over a decade now. They don't mean, they don't mean anything. Uh, it, until a kid is willing to tell people that he's committed somewhere, then, then he's not committed. I mean, that. I, 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 people, people don't like the term committed enough as is if a kid's co- like recruit, like visiting somewhere else or listening to other schools when he's committed somewhere else. But like a silent commitment is, is, is like the most worthless thing that there is in, in recruiting. It's just not, it's not of a, a value. I mean, because it, it, you can't do anything with it. If the kid's not going to admit to it, which it, it, how's he, how do you know he's going to sign if he's not willing to tell anyone that he's going to do that? Well, so. He's not, I mean, he wasn't when he was silently committed he wasn't coming to Notre Dame and trying to recruit other kids to be on the team. Right. Especially when he was taking trips other places. Right. You know, so, I mean, he was doing the opposite. CJ Carr drives the three hours to Notre Dame's campus every time there's a major recruiting event on his own dime. And he's on a seven on seven team loaded with Notre Dame targets on both sides of the ball. So, I mean, that kid's working his butt off recruiting. He's, he's putting it, you know, putting his verbal commitment where his mouth is. Yeah. And I, I, we've talked about it before, like the the Saturday before Justin Scott was potentially going to visit Notre Dame on a Sunday, CJ Carr was ready to go to campus on Sunday, not knowing whether or not Justin Scott was actually going to follow through on the visit, which didn't end up happening, but he was, he was waiting to get the final word to decide if that's how he was spending his Sunday or not. So like, that's the level of um, involvement that he has in this. So like comparing the two, I don't, doesn't make any sense to me. There's, I don't see the comparison. I don't, I don't understand how you would be putting too many eggs in the car basket. Like what, what's the alternative? Just not take a commitment until, until the end. Like, I, I don't what you got to take a commitment yeah. at some point. Like, I don't, I don't know how else you would, what else you would do. Like, I guess, I guess you're, maybe you're like assuming, well, CJ Carr was never really going to come to Notre. Like, I, I don't, that, I don't know why anyone would have that read. I know people are afraid of Michigan because of his name and his grandpa, but like that's they're they're beyond those connections. Both, both his grandpas went. <laughs> uh, like those Michigan aren't men. those aren't like uh, reasons to not take a, a commitment from CJ Carr. So I think we're jumping. Okay, thanks. Is jumping a few far few too a few steps too far ahead here. All right, uh, at Charles W. Wolf is asking is it just sour grapes or does it seem that brian kelly and tommy reese moved on to programs that perhaps don't require 
as much recruiting focus from their spots? I think there's recruiting scrutiny with their spots. I think um, Brian Kelly felt like it was going to be easier to recruit at LSU and he wouldn't have to work as hard at it. There'd be, you know, he wouldn't have to fly over the country. There's some national recruiting, but he, most of it was going to be around Louisiana, Texas, and so forth. And then with Tommy, you know, I don't think he, I think he thinks it'll be easier to get five stars to come to Alabama than it is to Notre Dame. Right. Um, but I don't think that that was in his logic of leaving. I, I, I think that if you asked him, that's probably what he would say that it's, he thinks it'll be easier to recruit, but he wasn't looking for a, you know, emergency exit or trap door out because of recruiting. Yeah. And, and to me, like the focus doesn't lessen. I think it's, it's just easier. Like, and I mean, who among us wouldn't want to go to a job that makes the worst part of their job easier. <laughs> like, like, I think that's a, a, a an attractive part of like pitches when you're considering a job. It's like, yeah, well, this is the one part of the job I don't like. And if I go to this job, I have, sort of the same sort of scenario, but I don't have to kill myself to, to recruit. And I don't have to worry about certain hurdles that come with recruiting to Notre Dame. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's sour grapes to describe it in that way. Um, But I also don't think it's like a reason to think less of those guys that they would be like, yeah, I want to, I want to go somewhere that where it's easier to do that. Like, I, I I don't know. I think uh, many of us have probably, considered similar things in, in making life decisions like our jobs. All right. Next question is from Baba Ganoush at PLACT underscore ITFDB. Seeing a lot of NFL draft gurus rate other tight ends higher than Mayer and have him going in the second round. Seems like this has shifted from one year ago when he was assumed to be the top tight end in the draft. Is it just a coincidence that the two rated ahead of him were on better teams, Georgia and Utah? Well, Brock Bowers isn't in this draft. I assume so. Darnell Washington is being ranked ahead of him. I think that's. I think that's. That Seriously, was my, I don't know. I have. I haven't been tracking this, so that was my. Uh, that was my guess of what. Um, I and I don't know if it's accurate or not. So I guess, but that was my. I, I haven't seen a lot of, uh, flip flopping of Michael Mayer, and my my answer to that would be wait till the combine. Wait till they see him. The combine. The other thing is, you always have these weird narratives about high draft picks because teams are trying to throw other people's off, people off, and there's people that'll take those and run with them. I don't think that there is a consensus that anybody's a better tight end in this draft than Michael Mayer. I would be really shocked. But we saw it with what well, Ronnie Stanley with Ronnie Stanley was suddenly too soft, and there were other narratives about other Notre Dame players that were just baffling at times. And and then Ronnie Stanley ends up going sixth in the first round. Right. So, um, and then being a really good pro. So I, I wouldn't pay too much attention. There's a lot of, um, you know, silly season left before we get to the draft. Yeah. I mean, I mean, sometimes we do overrate, the Notre Dame guys just based on our understanding of them and maybe not being as tapped into what the NFL thinks of them. Um, But I mean, at first, like whatever, whoever is rating those guys ahead of or ranking those guys ahead of 
Michael Mayer. I don't think they're doing it because Georgia and Utah had better seasons than than Notre Dame. I don't I don't think that has anything to do with why they will be making that. I I think in the draft coverage prognostication like field there it's hard to like be the number one for so long like I think it, it's boring yeah. to say Michael Mayer's the best tight end and then write that for 13 months like <laughs> I, yeah. like you you want to come up with different different angles to you to your coverage now I'm not saying they're just making things up well now maybe some people are I don't I don't want to like lob that against the whole draft industry but um they may gen- genuinely feel that those guys are better um it it is supposed to be a pretty loaded tight end class um but i i think there i my hunch is that there's probably some like whether whether known whether they would admit it or even are um knowingly doing this i think there's probably just some like bucking the trend stuff that's happening here it's like okay we've talked about michael Maris, the number one tight end like you know what i i kind of like dalton kincaid and why 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 can't he go ahead of michael Mayer? um so but yeah i mean we're still early in this we'll see what happens i i was thinking about it like i don't know that i've covered a more dominant offensive skill player in my time covering Notre dame i guess i and i couched that with saying skill because i think quentin nelson would probably be the top um player in terms of just offensive player um and since i've been fully covering Notre dame so I would be surprised if he's not the top tight end. And I think people, I think teams would be making a mistake if, if they, they draft another tight end ahead of him. All right. Our last question is from at Henry bead, which wide receiver will lead Notre Dame in snaps in 2023. What a great question uh, <laughs> to make my head hurt. Yeah. Henry bead has been coming up with some good, like sort of like place your bets props for us that have been, uh, that have been a bit challenging in the last few podcasts. So I think I'm going to go with the safest pick here. And yet maybe it isn't the safest pick. I was going to go with Jaden Thomas, but what if Caleb Smith is really good and they're playing the same position? Um, And then I thought, well, Tobias Merriweather probably has the most direct path, the most control. And yet he has one catch in college (laughs) And so you can't count that he's going to go from one to the most snaps uh, overnight, even though he has that kind of talent. So I'm going back to my safe pick and saying Jaden Thomas. All right. We're in agreement here. I think there's, there's a lot of different answers here, but it's funny that we would both have the same answer. I think maybe just because it feels the safest, like if you're going to go out on a limb and, and pick one guy, I think we probably have the most confidence in what he can do and him continuing to evolve based on how his last season went. And I, I, my concern is similar with the Caleb Smith thing. It's like, how much is he taking away time from Jaden Thomas? I think Jaden Thomas could end up playing more in the slot. Um, if that, if, if Caleb Smith is like a guy they can't take off the field. So maybe Caleb Smith ends up being the answer. I think it's a good thing that we don't know the answer. Like you would, I think you'd probably prefer to like, it's like, okay, Will Fuller, like that's, that's who's going to lead your receiver. But like, I think well, what if the new offensive coordinator likes different guys. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I, and I've said this before, I think we're going to see a lot of receivers this year, this year. I think there's going to be more guys playing more, more snaps. Um, and so it might be more even than someone like being the clear leader in snaps. Um, but if we're predicting now on February 8th, we're both in agreement that Jane Thomas is our prediction. All right. That is it 
for today's episode of the Inside Indy Sports Podcast. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other popular podcast platforms. If you like what you hear, give us a star rating, leave a review, and share our podcast feed with your Valentine. We want to get to 100 ratings on Apple Podcasts in 2023, and we're up to 84, so we're getting close. So please keep, um, well, not keep. If you've already given us a rating, you've done your job. But if you haven't given us a rating yet, uh, make sure you add yourself to that list. We will be back next week with another Inside Indy Sports podcast. This time for real, hopefully, we'll have talking to all four of Notre Dame's enrolled transfers on Friday. Um, and then Thursday night, we will be on our YouTube channel, Inside Indy Sports, uh, with a, the latest edition of Football Never Sleeps. So make sure you're tuning in to us there, and you can submit questions and talk to us on there. And until then, stick with InsideIndySports.com for all your Notre Dame coverage needs. Mm-hmm.